going to take a little bit of time to be inside the book of Psalms. I love the Psalms. Uh, One of my bare minimum practices each morning is to spend a bit of time in the Psalms. And sometimes I've got time, we're at my my desk at the house, and I've got a couple cups of coffee, and I have a decent amount of time. And other times, it's like this morning, I was on my phone in the office here at the church using a digital Bible. But I always make time each morning for the Psalms. the Psalms is the prayer book of the church, and if, if we want to understand any sort of you know, historical devotional practice, we can't do it without the Psalms. They're supposed to be a, a book of the community, a book of the church. Uh, and to be honest, I feel like I probably neglected the Psalms until I was in my 30s. You know, my, my journey with them as a valuable devotional tool didn't really begin until I started reading them every morning using the Episcopal Church's Book of Common Prayer. And that's the tool that's still used daily. Uh, but I love the Psalms. Walter Brueggemann, a biblical scholar, said the Psalms permit the faithful to enter wherever we are, regardless of what our relationship with God is like, whether we feel distance, whether we feel close, no matter what state we are in, the Psalms allows us to come into the presence of God. Regardless of our own relationship, our own holiness, They give us a door to the divine, a way to express our life with God right where we are at that moment and to seek Him further, whatever that might look like. And so what I want to do these next couple of weeks is really just look at the Psalms and how we use them in two different ways. I think two bookmarks on like the journey of human experience uh, of celebration and in lament. How do we use the Psalms as we celebrate and as we lament? And the passage that I picked out this morning, it actually kind of does both. It's a good example of both. And so I invite you to open your Bible, Psalm 31. We're going to go straight into the Scriptures this morning and read the first verses of Psalm 31. This is what it says. In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Do not ever let me be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me a strong fortress to save me. You are indeed my rock and fortress, and for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that is hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You've redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. You hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will exalt and rejoice in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have taken heed of my adversities and have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Jesus on the cross quoted this psalm when he said, Into your hand I commit my spirit. And that last moment of his own life before he uh, completely died and gave himself up for us, Jesus is quoting this psalm, into your hands I commit my spirit. He was putting his suffering and his experience and all the things that happened to him inside of the story of this psalm. And in that brief seven-word statement, into your hand I commit my spirit, Jesus declared that all he is, all he is in his own self, belongs all to God. And that really doesn't just sum up these eight verses we read this morning, but the entirety of Psalm 31. It's a prayer that's wrapped up together. 
It's a prayer both of consecration, of us saying, I belong to you completely, Lord. It's a prayer of celebration, of us realizing all the good things that have happened to us. It's also a prayer of lament, where we say, Lord, this is the space I'm experiencing loss right now, and my heart is broken for it. And it's doing that all at the same time. You know, the first thing, you know, lament, we don't talk about lament that much, do we? That word really isn't part of our, our language anymore. Some of us, if we grew up in church, we might call that a church word. Some of us might just call that a fancy word. But we don't talk about lament that much, and we need to. And, and I think we need to talk about lament in the church. I think lament is a church word. Because lament is an experience, is a way of dealing with, with hardships in a way that belongs specifically to the church. It's this genuine Christian emotion of faithfulness. And friends, sometimes we just haven't learned how to activate it. We don't know how to lament. Lament, it, it offers a resistance to the secular practice of just complaining. Think about it. What do we do, normally do when something bad happens to us? We gripe about it. Like that's that natural reaction. Something's bad, I have something new to gripe about. Bruce Waltke, a theologian, says this, Complaint collapses us into meaningness. But lament is a sacred and spiritual experience of trustful humility. You know, when we're in need, lament gives us words to function as God's children. Not just independent entities that are disembodied and have no purpose and, and have no connection to anything larger than themselves. Lament's a way of us saying, I belong to God and I belong to God even when crummy things are happening to me. It's a way that we lay ourselves before God. And in some ways, Psalm 31 is absolutely a lament psalm. But at the same time, it's also a psalm of celebration. It's a psalm where we are thankful people in spite of the situations that cause us to lament. Psalm 147.11 says this, The Lord delights in those who fear Him, who put their hope in His unfailing love. We see this hoping action happening in Psalm 31. This is what it's like to be hopeful. So let's think through those, through those, those emotions this morning of, of finding refuge and finding redemption, of, of lamenting and of celebrating, of the way that we find the full range of the human experience inside of our relationship with God. You know, to find refuge. The psalmist uh, prays, In you, O Lord, I seek my refuge. Talks about refuge actually several times in this psalm, and we get this idea, a picture that there's a significant problem that's going on, and we see how it is practically being directed towards God. In the first half of our section, one through four, really it's this downward spiral where we see the person who is saying these words say, I need refuge right now. And it all kind of comes to a head with that quotation from Psalm 31 that Jesus says on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. Grammatically, to find refuge means to function in defense. In Hebrew, literally, it means to find shade. To, to find something to stand underneath. You know, how many times when, uh, have you seen, I love it when, you, when it starts raining really bad. 
and you see people who find really funny things to cover their head with as they're running out to their car? Does anybody else? I refuse to carry an umbrella. It's just too much to keep up with. Just too much, too much. But, you know, sometimes you'll find, I mean, that, like, yeah, yeah, grocery bag, all sorts of stuff. You know, we find refuge. Under, that's, that's, the, that's the literal rendering of finding refuge is, is to seek shade and protection underneath something. There's eight words that we can translate to protection in the Psalms. And this one, idea of refuge, it shows up 24 different times. The larger theme of finding protection in the Psalms, it shows up around 50 times. So one out of every three Psalms talks about finding protection. Clearly a normal part of the faithful life that Psalms expresses is we will have times in our life where we need refuge and we need protection. So we can talk all nice and spiritual, maybe poetic about refuge. I think back to all the calendars my grandmother had, like some pretty painting and have a nice pretty Bible verse on top of it. Or we can talk normally. This is what it's like when we feel like we're being attacked. Literally. I think for me, when I fell in love with Psalms, and I'd struggled for a long time because it sounds like this is like literally physical attack, phys- physical battling. Is when I realized that, you know, there's something about a verbal attack that we deal with in our modern life, isn't there? And these same words apply in those situations. The psalmist here talks about a net that's hidden for them. You know, how many times do you walk into a conversation with somebody and you realize I've got to be very careful with my words right now because I don't know how they might be used against me? Or I'm talking with someone I don't necessarily trust, but I've got to work with. Or I've got to interact with this person because they're in my family, and if I don't talk to them every three months, it's going to be bad, like all that sort of thing. What is our life like when we think people are saying things about us and they're actively out to get us? Tradition tells us that David wrote this psalm as he was fleeing for his life from his son Absalom. When he's at the end of his life and Absalom declares himself king, runs his dad out of Jerusalem, and David and all of his retinue literally pack up and move across the river outside of Israel. Friends, none of us have had to pack up our stuff because our son's chasing us with swords and chariots, right? but sometimes our words can feel like they're at that level. You know, for some of us, the worst we're ever going to deal with in our entire life is having to deal with words. Thank God for that. But that doesn't negate the fact that that can be a very serious, troubling thing for us. What do we do in those moments? What do we do when we feel like we are being attacked? This psalm helps us understand how we can get practical. Remember how I talked about how the secular action of complaining is an opposite of lament as Christians. What might it look like if we intentionally seek out refuge or shelter, realizing that that is the opposite action of of reacting out and revenge, of lashing out? How many times have we found ourselves in a situation where someone says something about us, we're like, well, huh, I can say something about you too, partner. You know, sometimes lament is us saying, Lord, I know this is false. And Lord, I know I can accelerate this. I can 
level this up and ratchet this up significantly. I can, I can escalate this. But I know my, me doing so is actually not trusting in you. So instead, I'm going to do that. That when we know things are being said are false, that sometimes we just simply choose to, to fight this battle instead in a different way. To realize the person that's saying these things about us is doing a pretty good job of digging their own hole. And we're going to let them keep shoveling. A radical trust with God always saves His people. And this action of finding refuge means being intentional with those prayers. I mean, sometimes, friends, I'll tell you right now, sometimes you need to get your pencil and your paper out and start making some bullet points and be deliberate to God. This action of finding refuge is about being intentional with those prayers, of us being really deliberate and telling God, this is how I want to react. This is how I know I should not react. This is what I want to be doing. This is what they are doing. But this is where I need your help right now. I think in a lot of ways, the experiences that we are looking for in God, those, 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 those good feelings, that happy stuff, all those sorts of things, that if we're not willing to come to God when things are really, really bad and to complain to Him a little bit, we're going to struggle to experience the nice, warm, fuzzy stuff. All throughout the Psalms, we find out that a lot of people's primary experiences with God are coming to Him in these places of lament and frustration. I fell, I'll be honest with you. I fell in love with the Psalms through this sort of action. I learned to love the Psalms, not in peaceful times. We think of the Psalms as a peaceful book, don't we? Friends, I think the Psalms are a book about combat. I fell in love with the Psalms when I had to learn to actively start practicing refuging. To do so is a spiritual discipline. It means that when we are in these moments of greatest tension and stress, we align ourselves with a greater power during moments of these intensity because our trust in Him is us saying, Lord, we trust You that You have a stronger way out of this than we can do on our own. To practice finding refuge. But we also find redemption in this psalm. And I will say this. I think we have to, to understand redemption. I think we have to practice refuge first. We have to realize that we need rescuing. If we think we never need to get rescued, we're not going to value redemption very much. Redemption offered that really doesn't redeem isn't strong enough. There's something supernatural that happens when we finally get tired of trying to rescue ourselves and realize that Jesus really can. And we learn not only just once, but over and over and over the practice of, of, of refuge seeking as a normal behavior then we can experience redemption. Last year during deer season, my brother-in-law and I were out at the camp, and it was about to be New Year's. We're going to have a lot of folks hunting, and we were really excited about this. And he was wanting to join my camp, so I was trying to show him the camp, being all proud and stuff like this. We're also being kind of lazy. We had like 20 bags of deer corn we had to put out in places, and so we were just going to drive the camp instead of getting out and walking the corn. And I know that there's some people in here who are going to make fun of me for this, but... Um, for five vehicles in a row, I've had a Ford F-Series truck. And my brother-in-law, he, he was a recent convert. He's always been a GMC person. And we're driving down this uh, pipeline, and we're, I'm bragging about the fact that, you know, I don't mind these new aluminum bodies. 
I've never been stuck once in this truck, and I've got it into horrible places. And I, I'm, friends, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not lying to you. I literally used the word. He's like, oh, yeah, I like mine, too. We're having this kind of little self-brag party in the front seat. And I literally said, this truck will never get, when I said never get stuck, it moved down into a soft spot at a creek bed that had been dry for about a year that I thought I was safe to drive through. So I will tell you, my, my, my wife over there will tell you, if you want to get your truck stuck somewhere, the person you want to have riding shotgun with you is my brother-in-law, Jay McCalmon. Uh, he can redneck better than me. And so I immediately just like, I get out, Jay, get in the front seat. We could not get this thing out whatsoever at all. We get this truck buried down to the frame. And it was really frustrating because we knew that Jay's F-150 was at the camp a mile and a half away, and he had all the recovery gear we could want. I value my brother-in-law for a lot of things, but I really value my brother-in-law when he's with me in a situation like that. So we made a phone call. Yet another friend was driving out there, so he came and picked us up on the side of the road. We were covered in mud, kind of look all sheepish. Drive us to the camp. We go get Jay's truck. We pulled my truck right out of there. Friends, I did not value the stuff that Jay had in his truck until I needed it. And I was bragging that I would never need things like this in said truck. We cannot understand rescue and redemption until we know we need it. There's this image that this psalm brings out. I love it. It talks about the strong fortress. In you, I find my refuge. You are like a, a, a strong fortress to me. You know, we might get the idea of a fortress a little bit. Like when you're a kid, you build a fort in the woods. You know, you drive out to Pineville from across the river, and you see Fort Buell, and you're like, okay, there's that. We, we understand this idea. Uh, and I, I love that language in Psalms. I never really understood how powerful that was and what they were talking about it until Meredith and I went to the Holy Land a few years ago. Now, we've seen movies about castles, but how many times have you actually been in a fortress? So Tel Megiddo in Israel. Tel in, in Hebrew is hill. Uh, you might not have heard of Tel Megiddo, but you've heard of the Valley of Armageddon before. Well, this is Megiddo. This is Tel Megiddo. It's a fortress to the, the mouth of this valley. And, and this, this valley, it's um, it's massive plain that opens up. And, and what's interesting is if you're going to try to get from Egypt to Babylon, there's only one way to do it. And one of the ways is you have to filter through this mountain pass that's maybe about as wide as Glenmora. And right there at the mouth of this opening, some of the Egyptian army, the Babylonian army, the Hittite. No, one of the reasons it's, the Old Testament seems so violent is Israel is smack dab in the middle of the only road between the two biggest places of the world at that point in time. And if the two, the two, the two biggest kids on the block are going to want to fight, they always have to cross through the same yard. That yard was Israel. Now, tell Megiddo is this, this giant hilltop. And the very, very top of the hill is probably about 10 or 15 acres. But it was big enough to hold 500 chariots and their horses. It had a water well that was dug 350 feet deep. The tail is only about 80 feet deep, 80 feet tall at the top. The water well goes down 350 feet. Now, you stay on top of that. You can, just, you can Google it later on today if you want to. Just tell Megiddo. You can see across this entire valley, and from the top of that fortress, 
You know, about a thousand people had the ability to hold off armies of 10,000 of people. It was a strong fortress. Solomon is the one who built out um, all the stables for the things there. It's all throughout Scripture. We find all sorts of battles throughout Scripture happen right there on this plain because that's the major crossroads. You know, I think these strong fortresses that we read in Scripture, you know, to us it's just pretty imagery. When you're in the Holy Land, you realize, no, these are legitimate places that are known to where a small handful of people can hold off massive amounts of others. You know, in Jesus' time, there was another uh, fortress. It was the Fortress Masada, to where around 200 Jewish rebels held off two entire Roman legions for years. The ramp they had to build to get into this fortress can still be seen today. This is, these are places where say, Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm finding redemption in you, and you are building me up to stay strong and to celebrate your strength in ways that do not make sense to the world. You are my fortress. For my relationship with you is formidable in the face of my enemies. Now, there are times that we might want to talk about the rescue and the redemption of God as a personal event, but this is also larger than that. This is about us realizing that our relationship with God can be a beacon of protection, not just to us, but to those around us. This is what a person who has experienced redemption can say. It's actually to be a bit proud. It's, it's, we're saying, you know, these things don't help. Psalms talks about idols, calls them worthless things. Like, oh, these things do not help, but my Lord helps. My Lord is my strength, and my Lord can be your strength. He has seen me. He knows me. He knows what I am up against. He fortifies me, and He is with me. And this leads us to the end of the prayer, and my favorite part of the prayer, one of my favorite part of the Psalms, perhaps, when it says this in verse 8, You have set my feet in a broad place. I love that verse. You've set my feet in a broad place. A couple years ago, I realized that phrase started showing up several different places in the Psalms, and I went and did a bit of digging, and I realized that the whole word family, the idea, came from a story in the book of Genesis. It's where Isaac, the son of Abraham, had, had begun trying to move back into the places his father had lived where he had grown up, and he was in constant conflict with the people who did not want him there because he was just too numerous and too strong. And because of the relationship he had with his God, he always seemed to prevail. So the people were like, we don't want Isaac here. So what they started doing was they started filling in his father's well so he could not get water from them. Genesis 26, 22, he comes to a place and the constant battle is now gone. He begins to redig the wells of his father. A beautiful image of revival. But then he says this in, in verse 22. The Lord has given us room and we will flourish in the land. When the psalmist says, you've set my feet in a broad place, it's echoing that verse. It's us saying, the Lord has given me space to thrive. He's given me room to thrive. He's given me every single thing that I need and I am going to flourish in this space. 
The psalm shows us in the midst of turmoil, the rescued and the redeemed people of God are standing in broad places. We're standing in places of thriving. The presence of the Lord, regardless of the circumstances we have in the present, props us up because He loves us and He provides for us. And friends, this is the grace of God that's offered to us freely. And all we have to do if we want to experience this uh, is to let Him give us refuge. To call on His name, to tell Him what's going on, and to just let God be Himself, our mighty God and our strong God. So as we enter into this time of communion together this morning, let's come into His presence seeking that refuge and celebrating that redemption. Giving witness and testimony to those broad places where He has stood us up. Amen. Let us pray together this morning. Father, God, each one of us can stand up. God can tell stories of rescue, of redemption.